Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to you all. This is the fifth in a series of six lectures. And the overall title is Frontiers of Knowledge, and they are jointly sponsored by the Public Lectures Committee of the University and the Graduate School, which is celebrating its centennial year this year. Uh, this series has brought back to campus uh, some of the very distinguished graduates of the school, uh, representing many different fields of inquiry. Uh, and we think it has been a, a wonderful opportunity to showcase uh, the range of work done uh, in our various programs of study. Uh, after the lecture, and there will be questions, <coughs> opportunity for questions at that point, there will be a reception for our speaker in Frist Campus Center uh, on the lower level. If you follow uh, people leaving this room, I think you'll find your way readily. Um, and I should say that the final lecture in this series uh, will be given uh, in April by Professor Lester Little, who is head of the American Academy in Rome. Uh, once again, let me welcome all of you to this series, and may I ask uh, Professor Ben Bernanke to introduce our speaker. Ben. Thanks, John. Good afternoon. I'm Ben Bernanke. I'm serving currently as the chair of the Economics Department at Princeton, and it's my pleasure to welcome you and to introduce our speaker today. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Bailey is the chair of the department and the John C. Howard Professor of Public Policy and Management at the Wharton School at Pennsylvania. She attended Radcliffe College, and then uh, in 1972, she was the first woman to receive the PhD in economics from Princeton University. Um, she's had a distinguished career. Her areas of focus have been regulation, antitrust, public economics, um, and other areas um, related to uh, industry. Um, after leaving Princeton, she spent four years as the head of research in economics at the Bell Labs. And then from 1977 to 1983, uh, she was um, in Washington as the uh, commissioner and vice chairman of the Civil Aeronautics Board. And this was a period of uh, great ferment and change in regulation of uh, the airlines, and Betsy Bailey was in the middle of that. Um, from 1983 to 1990, uh, Betsy was the Dean of the Graduate School of Industrial Administration at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and now, of course, she's currently at, um, um, at the Wharton School. Um, Dr. Bailey has uh, been, uh, produced a lot of service for uh, Princeton. We're most appreciative. She was a trustee uh, for four years. And since 89, she's been a member of the Advisory Council, which comes periodically to the Economics Department at Princeton and helps us uh, put our feet on the right path. Um, so uh, Betsy was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1997, and she was elected the president of the Eastern Economics Association in 1998. So she has had a distinguished career, both in economic research, in uh, educational administration, and in governmental policy. Uh, her talk today is entitled, A Regulatory Framework for um, the 21st Century, and it's my pleasure to welcome Betsy back to Princeton. Thank you, Ben. And uh, 
I'm just really happy to be here today and uh, honored uh, to have uh, President Shapiro uh, here, as well as I have a lot of my family here, a lot of my former professors here, and a lot of colleagues and friends. So um, this is an honor for me and um, one that I'm looking forward to. So uh, I, just to get, get started on the 21st century mode, when I went to Wharton, I only used chalk. And then I would have some of my students come up and give um, presentations in class, and they all use PowerPoint. And so they shamed me into it. And with my colleague, Chris Maxwell, who's here today, this is my first year in the 21st century actually using PowerPoint at school and uh, also then today. So um, that's our first little 20th, 21st century uh, move. I'm going to start here talking about, you know, why you need government because, and, and the reason that you do is that to have markets function well, you really need a stable and fair set of rules of the game. And the kinds of rules that, that there are, there's policies and laws to protect competition in the antitrust area. There's regulation when markets uh, don't work very well, um, in particular today. I'm going to be talking about economic regulation, which is, tries to address monopoly problems. And I'm going to talk about social regulation that addresses um, externalities and public goods problems. And I'll, I'll describe what kinds of problems those are. There are other kinds of regulation, disclosure regulation, largely in financial kinds of markets, but we'll talk a little about it today. And also, of course, the judicial system to enforce um, rights in, in our courts. The reason that I'm picking the two in the, you know, sort of highlighted in yellow to talk about today is because I thought for a centennial that what we ought to do is to take ideas from the 20th century that were ideas in economics that I feel have had a lot of practical implications as we're moving into the 21st century. And I picked two, one in the, the area of um, monopoly regulation and one in the area of social regulation. And the contestable markets concept is the one that, I, that um, I've picked. And that's a Princeton concept, or Princeton slash Bell Labs slash NYU. Um, the group of us were all working on it um, in the late 70s. And it's been used and adopted um, very uh, heavily in the deregulation movement in this country and in the privatization movement and the rest of the world. And what's interesting is it isn't so much economists who've picked it up as it is people from the World Bank and, and practical regulators um, all around the world. The second concept, the Kosian concept, is a Chicago concept, boo. <laughs> but uh, uh, we just couldn't have it too much. I will bring up, and as I'm going through this, you know, where, where some of these things um, originated. But um, he actually won a Nobel Prize for his concept, and a lot of it has to do with designing social regulations in ways that minimize transactions costs and that involve cooperation um, with industry. So instead of a sort of a we day, it's a, a pulling together um, kind of a, a notion. 
the way it's been working out. If you, I'm going to start with the contestable markets and talk about um, economic regulatory policy and go a little bit into the, the background. It, the, the earliest uh, form or motivation for regulatory policy was the idea of forging markets in this country, being able to have a railroad go from coast to coast, basically opening up the whole western part um, of our um, economy. The, the role that the government had at the time was basically giving um, uh, rights of way for railroads, giving land for some of these things to be built. And, you know, the, the, the exciting thing was that that happened. You got all that expansion, sometimes an overexpansion, but the con of it was that, that there came about a lot of trust and robber barons and so forth toward the end of the 19th century, which which led to um, a lot of populist concerns, and they led to the beginnings of the antitrust laws in 1890 and, and to the, the establishment of the first regulatory agency in, in, um, in 1980, or 1887. If you kind of move from the 1800s to the 1900s, um, the concern was somewhat different. It was much, it was focused also on infrastructure, making sure that telecommunications and transportation were available throughout the country, but it, there was, the emphasis was much more on ensuring equity and fairness. There was a, a hope that you could really have universal service for everybody, but that nobody would uh, be paying too differently from anybody else. And um, in order to accomplish this, there were a lot of kind of deals made in which there was a, a trade-off in which you would grant one company often a monopoly and then what you would do is regulate uh, price and, um, and service in various ways. The, you know, the exciting aspect of, the, of the, this period is that, that we did succeed in developing these markets and in getting these kinds of services available everywhere. Uh, and at reasonable rates. And then by the time we got into the late 1900s, 1975 and onward, what you were more concerned with for mature markets was basically some kind of deregulation to ensure efficiency. And I'll talk about some of the inefficiencies that happened in the developing market period uh, as we come up. But as I kind of go along in this talk, on the forging markets, we're going to use the railroad as an example. Then, as we hit the developing markets, I'm going to talk about sort of 100 years of telephone policy. And then, for the more modern era, I'm going to do airplanes, which, of course, I have to do that since for my own background. And if you take a look at this little thing, oh, I had this way at Wharton where I could point to that and you could hear the airplane take off. But alas, it doesn't work here. I tried it. But I've been told that if they had just known, they would have loaded yet one more thing for me so that you could have gotten the proper roar, whatever. So, um, so, so that kind of gives you the, the flavor. If you kind of look at, um, you know, back at this uh, origins of economic regulation in, the, in this Supreme Court decision of 1877, basically, the, the nature of, of what was happening or actually originated, I guess, in, um, can be traced back to the English monarchy in, in the 1100s where people were granted rights of way through private property to stage lines and in return, um, basically, the government retained the authority to regulate services and prices. 
And uh, this is kind of what happened um, here in this country. The idea was that, that railroads, warehouses, grain elevators were basically clothed with the public interest and could be supervised by government. And eventually that supervision moved up from the state level up to the federal level. And, uh, and uh, uh, what is interesting about this, which was sort of the beginnings of the, of, uh, the, the regulation of railroads, is I have a friend who uh, likes to do antiques, and they picked up a, a book from 1913 that had real, like, uh, parchment paper, kind of a feel to it that listed every stock and bond um, in the United States at that time. And of 240 pages of stocks and bonds, 170 pages had to do with railroads. So if you think of it, the railroads were sort of the dot-coms at the beginning of the last, coming, coming into the beginning of the 20th century. If you look over the course of uh, the century to sort of see what kinds of um, regulation and reform were taking place, what's interesting is that you get a sense of a sort of a wave. That's why we sort of drew these a little bit like, like a wave. But what's interesting is if you go through every one of these industries, um, what you would find is, in this case, it was around the time of the Great Depression, people had lost confidence in the marketplace, and what they were looking for was to have that markets had sort of failed from their perspective and they were looking for the government to do a better job for them. And if you were in any one, it was, there was a wave in the sense that it was the thing that was happening at that time and it, it would hit industry after industry after industry. So it was very hard to avoid no matter what industry you were in, that's what was getting um, in, imposed on you. Well, what's very interesting is if you look at the late 70s and the 80s, you have a similar pattern, but in this case it's basically uh, deregulation that's taking place and um, what was going on in this period is that that the way regulation worked it just kept sort of spreading wider and wider and getting more and more intrusive and more and more heavy-handed and so at the time that people were thinking about deregulating they, they were just um, uh, really wanting to um, to move to a, a regime that would basically sort of free themselves up from, um, from, from those heavy hands. And so they were looking for um, ideas uh, that, that would help them devise a way to try to like lighten the regulatory load. Um, during, you know, until those ideas came up, if you looked over the period to see the kind of instruments that they, that you had for regulating, um, you had independent regulatory agencies, basically one for each industry. Um, each of them would have five or more members. You would, the members would get picked by, uh, would have to go through the advice and consent of the Senate. Quasi-judicial, a lot of the um, cases that would be brought before a regulatory agency would, would have a real legal feel to them. Uh, the nature of the cases were both in this um, area of uh, entry um, and in the area of pricing. To just give you a feeling, when you talk about route by route and commodity, commodity, commodity by commodity entry, if you were, for example, a truck, you might have authority to carry oranges from Florida up to Vermont, but you might not have authority or train to carry apples from Vermont back to Florida. So it was like every single commodity in every single direction, you had to get permission from the government 
in order to, to basically carry that. Um, for, you know, when I got to the Civil Aeronautics Board, if any airline wanted to go into a new route, it was flying, say, from New York to Chicago, but it wanted to be able to go from Chicago to St. Louis, it would take roughly two years for it to argue to be able to get into one route like that. That's, that's how long they took. That when, when I talked about this regulatory net spreading, it started out with the railroads, but then it moved to trucks, it moved to barges. Um, so it just, when you begin to regulate with that level of detail, it just keeps getting larger and larger. And you're basically having Washington making a lot of decisions that, you know, just instinctively you think a firm should make. I'll give you an example of one thing that happened to me when I was on the Civil Aeronautics Board. I got a, we, we used to have a pager that we would have to have at night, and we'd take turns which commissioner would have it. And I got called up once at around 3 in the morning, and there was a sick horse that needed to be transported from Alaska down to, to the States. And they were basically calling up a commissioner because whatever aircraft it was, was certified for cows, but not for horses. So, <laughs> I mean, it gives you, <laughs> I mean, that to me, that really did it in terms of like starting to look for ways out of that degree of detail. Um, um, this agency price setting, um, you set formulas um, by distance usually. There was a lot of deliberate cross subsidies. I'll talk about those. Another thing which is too bad is you would never fill an empty seat with a discount uh, fare. They, they would allow some charter services as a separate kind of low cost thing, but they would never allow a regular carrier to um, offer anything but the one price. Okay, so that was sort of the situation that we came into as we came into deregulation. And so this, I want to mention what this contestable markets um, idea sort of did to free, think, to free up the way you looked at regulation. It basically said there's a lot of markets. I mean, think of, for example, any air market between two, two cities, that where there's going to be a small number of competitors. And the question is, you know, does that something you have to worry about? Do you have to, is that going to lead to monopoly pricing? And the thought about contestable markets was that in lots of cases, if entry and exit are very easy, nobody's going to be able to charge a monopoly price in that kind of a market. And there's no reason that those markets can't be left to the competitive marketplace and, and be deregulated. And I'll give you an example of one of the decisions that, that we made. Early on, when I was um, at the Civil Aeronautics Board, there was a merger that had come before us, and the market that was being looked at was between um, Houston and New Orleans. And two carriers uh, wanted to merge, and between them, they would have had uh, almost 60% of that market. They each had about 30% market share. And the Department of Justice at the time was saying, well, we don't think you should let this merger go through. It's going to be too much market power. Well, we said, we looked at it, and we said there's 11 carriers that both serve Houston and serve New Orleans. And if these two go in, somebody else will come in and lighten it up. I mean, why do we have to worry about blocking it in the case where there's entry and exit are very easy? Fred Kahn used to, Alfred Kahn was um, the kind of father of deregulation in our agency in, in Washington, and he used to say airplanes are marginal costs with wings. I really liked that, but you know, you could easily move them from one market to another. And so that's kind of a contestable market, and you would think, even though there's small numbers, it's not competitive in sense there's not huge numbers of people, but there's small numbers, but it's still something you don't need to worry about. 
There's still, if you look across all these infrastructure industries, a lot of uh, monopoly elements. And the more that you have these sunk cost um, elements, the more an incumbent does have market power and you need to think about some sort of intervention. But one of the things um, that this whole movement did was to again say, you know, let's not just have any kind of inter intervention. Like, for example, an, an example of such a monopoly markets in the railroads was what they call a captive market. It would be taking coal from an electric, from a coal uh, just facility across the railroad to, to, an, to Southern Electric or some electric company. And one of the things that was done is to say, well, all these three people are in a long-term relationship with each other. Why can't you just let them come up with a long-term contract in dealing with each other, the railroad, the um, um, coal plant, and the electric utility? And that was the sort of uh, thing that, they, that as they moved toward deregulating in the railroads, if there were elements of monopoly markets left, they looked at other ways, lighter way, lighter touches to handle things. And then the third component of this um, contestable market is that technological change is rendering a lot more um, markets more contestable than they had been. I'll give you an example from telephone. Um, if you think of uh, telephones as being connected with copper wires under your house, that's a very sunk cost type of technology. But if you think of satellites or microwave towers or something like that, that is much more of a contestable kind of thing. So long distance service, you would think, would, you know, became more contestable as technology changed over the course of the last century. So then what are the instruments now of deregulation as opposed to of regulation? And I keep putting all these little sources up here. You should see the last source was Will Baumol, who was my thesis advisor here, and Bobby Willig, who's in the audience today, and a friend of ours, John Panzer. This one I put down because while they thought of many of the grand ideas, I was the one that implemented a lot of them. So I was down there in Washington and ahead of the game, ahead of anybody else in Washington and kind of knowing what was going on in academia. And so I was basically telling people, hey, we've got to change the mindset toward entry. You know, you need a pool of actual or potential entrants. So this idea of having it be so tough to have anybody get in is not the right way to do it. We want to remove entry restrictions and as fast as possible and so forth. So like one of the ideas that we would have is, instead of just waiting for somebody to ask us to open one route of entry, we would say at that time Newark Airport here, was very underutilized compared to LaGuardia and Kennedy. No longer true, but at that time it was. So we basically said, show cause, show us a cause why we should not just let anybody who wants to fly to Newark be able to do it. Same kind of thing would go for San Jose Airport in California, Midway Airport in Chicago, and so forth. So we basically took a whole set of underutilized airports and just said, we're just going to completely open entry to those, Baltimore around the Washington region and so forth. So that. So, so that would be an idea that, 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 or an implementation that reflects this change mindset toward entry. Then the second thing is on pricing freedoms, we were willing to do discounts immediately. We would say, okay, you can take up to 35% of your seats and sell them at a discount if you would wish. Didn't mandate it, but we allowed them to do it. And what most carriers did was to basically have the cheaper seats be on the off-peak times. In other words, it wouldn't be Friday night or Monday morning that you would get the cheap seats. It would be um, over the weekend or midweek or whatever. 
The other thing is, we did not grant pricing flexibility upward. I mean, in other words, let people increase prices only after two years after we had completely and fully opened entry. Because if you have restrictions on capacity, prices are apt to shoot up. One of the things I'm going to do, I'm going to give you some success stories, but then I'm going to give you a massive failure of today, namely the California case. So I just want to, this is a setup that you must keep in mind when I get to the Calif what's happening with California right now. Okay, and then, okay, the third thing was that when you sunset or reduced agency functions, um, you, you would tend to do it with a transition period. In the case of the Civil Aeronautics Board, it was six years. It's, been, it's being a lot, lot longer in both the railroad case and the telephone case. But there is a notion, at least, of moving in a direction um, that you commit to um, as opposed to doing something on the instant. Um, I mentioned the new sites of oversight and um, some degree of transferring merger authority. I don't think that's really important. So now I'm going to sort of go through with the railroad same symbol. You see this? Oh, I love it. I tell you. I'm a kid. I mean, what's interesting about these charts is the ones that I did, I always do them on the left because I'm left-handed, you know, but other ones that were, other people are developing in school, they tend to be on the right if they're developed by right-handed people. <laughs> so. It was just pointed out to me the other day that I came up with a bunch of last-minute charts for this, and every single one of them has all these left-handed things. Anyway, so this railroads, we talked about this um, Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887, regulating these rail rates. We talked about expanding to all these other things. It expand. The ICC used to have telephones and airlines in them, too. I mean, it just, anything that looked like transportation or communications was in the Interstate Commerce Commission. It wasn't until the 30s that they basically took the, this is the FCC stands for Federal Communications Commission, and this is Civil Aeronautics Board. So the, those were moved to their own agencies in the 30s. The Staggers Act that partially deregulated rail happened in 1980, um, and it sunset this Interstate Commerce Commission, but it created a new littler one called the Service Transportation Board. It's a, there's, this is a story, not such a good story about industry, but there was a man named Drew Lewis who was the head of the Union Pacific Railroad and had been a secretary of transportation, so he'd been doing what they call a revolving door a lot. But he, um, he wanted to have a big uh, merger of himself with another Western Railroad, had a lot of overlap. And he didn't think that if the if the if you completely sunset this ICC, he didn't think he'd get permission to do it from the Justice Department. So what he did instead was created this thing, which he had a lot of influence over, so that he could get that merger that he wanted. Now it's sort of hanging around. It's clear as we move into this century, it's very weak. It's probably going to be sunset um, soon. And particularly because now, of course, the railroads are just dying to have these transcontinental end-to-end -end mergers between the east and the west. And you're back down in the railroads from these, from these 170 pages I was telling you about of that many kind of railroads to now really having four right now and maybe two very small numbers as we go into this century. Um, telephone. Um, you know, the big important compromise was one that was done by Theodore Vale, who was the head of AT&T in the early, early uh, 1900s. And, uh, you know, the trade that he basically made, he said, give me an, a monopoly in long distance 
in return, and then I'll agree to have you, be, you the government, be able to control prices in both long distance and local service. So he basically talked uh, Congress into making um, this kind of deal. And what it was attractive to Congress about it was that at that time, most of the telephone services just were, had a mo more of a local feel, and they liked the idea of, again, moving it across getting universal service as fast as possible, and they thought it would be much more likely to happen if AT&T made that commitment than if there was competition. So they were not, um, they didn't have as good a view of competition as I do in helping things out. There, was a, there definitely was a mindset at this time that, that uh, the role of government, uh, the government could do something like this and could be very successful in, in setting up its own policies. If you look at the time when the competition began to open up, the very earliest dates were in 69, which was, uh, I think, the court system permitting MCI in some long-distance markets. And then the big event in 1984 was the divestiture of the local belt operating companies and, and having three people basically compete in long-distance. Still, the Telecommunications Act in 96 was trying to give some further relief. There is still a very long way to go. And um, there's going to be a lot of things happening, not just in telephone, but the intersection between telephone and, and um, the Internet and cable and so forth. As we move into this century, this is going to be a, a huge area. It isn't one that is as settled as in the transportation area. Airlines. Um, from the 20th to the 21st century. One of the things that was very interesting is that when you have government do things, um, they did not allow a single new carrier to come into the industry in the whole 40 years that they regulated between 1938 and 1978. Agency completely was like a cartel in setting prices. And what was very interesting about how airline deregulation came about um, is that it actually started, I love this story, this FedEx experiment. Um, uh, Fred Smith was a student at Yale, and evidently he received a grade of C for a business plan that he had put together that described this idea of FedEx, which is, you know, bringing all these planes into a place in the middle of the country, changing every, using college students to switch the mail in the middle of the night and then sending them out to get delivered for the, all the rest of the company to get a country to get it to them the next morning. So this sort of overnight delivery that costs quite a bit of money, um, you know, what wasn't thought well of by his economics professors, but it certainly has turned out to be a <laughs> excellent business plan despite of that. But you see, they were Yale. They weren't here. What can I say? I bet I've been in Princeton. I'm sure <laughs> someone would have noticed the practicality of this. But what happened was that he was able, at the time, the, all the um, airplanes were not allowed to carry cargo except little tiny airplanes. Part of the regulation was that you could, you could use the bellies of a bigger plane for cargo, but you couldn't have a large cargo kind of plane. So this was a whole new idea that you could actually use big planes to fill the whole plane with cargo and, and basically do it. But nobody fought him about it. And so he basically got a little act of deregulation done in Congress um, just on this one little cargo idea that people didn't have to get oh, every single route done. You could, if you wanted to do this, anybody could come in and do it in this cargo area. 
And, of course, it was a grand success. So was really nice by, by 78, you had like five or six years of a wonderful um, success that made it look like regulators were being very uninnovative. You know, so new, new things were out there ready to happen, and it just wasn't happening because of the way bureaucrats thought. Another thing that happened in the period just before uh, regulation, I mean, uh, um, airline deregulation, were that within the states of California and Texas, those states allowed carriers, Southwest in Texas and uh, Pacific Southwest in California, to fly without any price or entry regulation within their state line. It was a felony to cross the state line into any other state. But within the state, um, you, you could um, offer, you had no um, restrictions on you. And what ended up happening was that they ended up charging fares that were about half as high, for example, between San Francisco and Los Angeles as you would have to pay between, say, Boston and Washington. And Senator Edward Kennedy had to fly a lot from Boston to Washington, and he was pretty outraged that everybody on the East Coast was paying twice as much for air service as people on the West Coast. So he was one of the um, first um, people in the Senate um, to be a strong advocate of deregulation. So by the time Fred Kahn and I arrived in like 77, and by the time we had arrived, you know, we were only a year away from actually doing the deregulation. So we actually went there with a mandate. Um, yeah, we were picked because the people knew what our philosophies toward um, um, deregulation was. And I, I mentioned that was kind of sunset over time. A lot of ongoing issues in, um, in the airlines as we go coming into this century. One is that there's a lot of consumer complaints right now, mostly from delays. Those delays are because um, the amount of plane service has quadrupled since the late 70s, but there's been no increase in air traffic control or airport capacity almost at all. So there's a group of people now that, have, that are looking to, to, at the possible privatization of air traffic control. It's a group that Nancy Kassenbaum, a former, former senator, is on. And, chaired by John Snows, the, the chair of uh, CSX. So there, there's a group that's working on that, and there's a lot of stuff going on in the antitrust division, or at least there was under the Joel Klein administration. I'm not sure how it's going to be under the Bush administration, but there's pending mergers like US Air and United and American and um, TWA. And then they've switched a bunch of stuff between themselves. And there's a case against American Airlines on, uh, on uh, their, how they handle things at hub airports and so forth. So anyway, I'm not sure how those are going to go, but I wanted to kind of leave you where that, where that was heading in this century. OK, one other thing that um, I thought it would be interesting for you to get a sense about, and that is that since I've gone to a business school, what I realize is that deregulation isn't just something that affects public policy. It also affects how business does things. And just to give you an example, I mean, this one, the new definition of arena, there have been a lot of like Southwest or People's Expresses or um, you know, other airlines that have kind of come in. But the main thing that I thought was very interesting is this concept in business schools of core competencies, what things you're really good at. And for example, in aviation, there wasn't anybody who had ever set a price in the whole industry, because that was all done in Washington. So they didn't know how to do pricing. So they had to build up that sort of competency. And if you think of how fancy all these 
you know, yield management programs are, where you're having, if you get this price, if you stay over Saturday night, this, that, and the other thing, all of that has all developed since deregulation. Another thing, when I was dean at Carnegie Mellon, I once asked, you know, where are all my operations PhD, operations research PhDs going? And they were all going down to American Airlines because they had not, and they didn't have any core competency at the time in figuring out how to fly a flow all these airplanes through their networks in a way that would minimize uh, their costs. And um, it turned out it's very much of a hub and spoke type of system. And all the kind of uh, management of the planes and of crews and all of that um, it was very much of an operations research kind of uh, thing. Okay, so just to give you a sense of that there have been some substantial gains, uh, mostly to consumers since deregulation uh, in coming into the multiple billions of dollars a year, um, particularly in the, um, the area of any place that, that where there was a lot of empty capacity, like the seat next to you in an airplane or like um, backhauls on routes for, for trains or um, trucks. Now, I just want to mention uh, that while this was going on in the United States, um, it, it really inspired people around the rest of the world um, to privatize. And in most places in the world where we had private management over here and we had regulators of the private firms, which is what I've been talking about so far, in most of the world, their infrastructure was all owned by the government. And so it started with Margaret Thatcher's government in the UK began to basically privatize its telephone, its railroads, and so forth, gas. Um, and move more toward a system like this, where you still, they would, as soon as they would, um, they actually put them out to auction and out to bids um, to, to privatize a lot of them. I think they got like 95 billion or something so far in, in the UK from that. But then they would create an office of telephone or off-tell, off off-gas, off-whatever, um, to, to oversee the newly privatized. Um, entities. There is um, privatization, um, not just in Western Europe, um, which was b basically moving things from the government. But it was there were Western Europe. There are a lot of market economies, but they happen to have public ownership of this infrastructure. There's also a lot of privatization done in parts of the world where they were moving from socialist economies to more market democracies. And um, there, they would tend to need a lot of um, outside capital, which wasn't needed in Europe, uh, as part of the privatization to supply, you know, technological knowledge, human knowledge, not just money, but, um, tech, you know, sort of management know-how. Very interesting when you look at post-privatization performance. Um, not surprising, profitability goes up. Efficiency, investment goes up a lot, which indicates when things are in public sector hands, you tend not to invest in, in them as much as you might want. Output goes up a lot. Employment hardly at all. This is a, a study, um, one of a number of studies that have been done by the World Bank. The World Bank has done an awful lot of, um, a lot of their um, brochures look like sort of contestability in practice. I mean, they have really um, extended the, the theory in very practical manners to give sort of do's and don'ts of privatization. But one of the things that there tends to be very high employment in government-owned industries, so you can get a lot more output without in increasing employment hardly at all when, when you privatize. 
to just give you a notion of what didn't work, this California, you know, so I'm sort of giving you a happy story about deregulation, but I wanted to make sure both in the economic side and the social side to give you one negative uh, one. And this one is in California, and this little chart over here gives a generating capacity in California between 1990 and 2000, and you can see the, the capacity went down, even though in Silicon Valley, demand was like shooting up. And the reason that there wasn't any of this new power, I have to read it. NIMBY is not in my backyard, but I like this banana, but I have to, I'm not good at saying what it is. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. This is kind of, but if you've got demand shooting up and you've got capacity like stuck, um, it's not so surprising that you, I even learned this when I was in school. Prices would go up. <laughs> And what happened in this, I put this, it was botched entry deregulation because they weren't allowing any entry. But you see, I couldn't even call it deregulation. I would put it in quotes. So, because it really isn't. Because here's what they did. It's if you're deregulating, you, you free up entry. So you, you free up letting people come in. They basically haven't. Not only have they freed it up, they've made it impossible for anybody to come in. And then what you do is, you know, you only do things with prices afterwards. Here, and you definitely should like, you know, as soon as entry looks open. But here what they did is they freed prices on the wholesale market. So utilities were having to pay these huge prices. They were forced to buy in a spot market. They weren't allowed to do any long-term contract. Can you imagine if the Las Vegas hotel was told you can't sell any block space ahead of time? You got to do it all at the last minute. So, I mean, and then what they did is they froze retail prices to consumers. So consumers don't have any incentive to cut power use. So they, they, the prices to consumers were down here. The prices of utilities paying are up here. And there's a lot of bankruptcies and crises there. You can see, you would think that anybody knowing much about economics would have um, taken care of that in a better way. And in fact, the whole of Stanford and Berkeley are all out there like working on this issue. It's a political kind of thing. I'm just going to move toward the second idea that I wanted to discuss today, which is this Kosian, um concept, and um, start with this idea of a public good. A lighthouse was sort of the traditional thing that economists would say is a public good. If you had a boat coming along and, and it was showing you a light to prevent you from going into the rocks, um, you know, it, um, any boat that was in the neighborhood would see the light. You couldn't exclude anybody. And the thought was that you had to have public supply of it because there wasn't any way that you could do pricing. What was really interesting that Coase did was he went and he actually looked to see what was practically happening out there. This is a British lighthouse. And um, he found that in um, the 17th century, most of British lighthouses were privately built and run. They weren't part of a government um, thing. And what they did was they, the government basically allowed um, uh, people in ports to collect fees. So the government basically authorized, sort of like you would authorize in a toll road, the ability to collect fees. So you didn't have to have public supply just because something looked like a public good. The second example on Coase, it's actually one of his students, was um, on this externalities. The idea here, again, was something that was talked about a lot in all the basic sort of textbooks of economics, which is, you know, if you were, if you had bees and you had an apple orchard, you know, the bees would basically um, 
what do they do with apple orchids? You know what I mean? Pollinate, that's what they do. They, you know, so bees would provide this positive externality to all the apple orchard owners of this pollination. And it was, you know, traditionally thought, well, you know, there's no way to handle these externality things. We're not going to have enough bees and apple orchards as a result. And the student of Coase basically looked and said, you know, if you actually go out to Washington State, there's a lot of private contractors between contracts between growers and beekeepers that basically internalize this externality and these things that everybody is fearful about just basically weren't happening. In other words, you didn't have to always have government intervene in cases like this. Sometimes markets worked well. So what Coase ended up sort of doing is making a distinction saying that there's a lot of cases where handshake, like you've got here, um, when the affected parties are small, that you can negotiate with one another and you don't have to have government intervention. Um, but in other cases, and th these are cases where you don't have small numbers, but you have large numbers, like all these cars. This is on cars on a California. I'm really picking on California today. It's probably because I have the sun out in California, so he keeps me up on California things. But. Um, you know, just enormous uh, traffic jams and pollution and stuff. On a case like that, you know, if it's creating um, major uh, smog days, here's a look at basin days in 76, uh, smog days were almost 200 days out of the year that the air quality was really, really poor in that basin. Um, then what you do need is government to basically come in and, and set and figure out a way to um, set uh, a set of um, standards so that you basically lower, as you can see, the number of pollution days by 98 had gone down to just more than 50 a year. They did it, I mean, they have rules on electric cars coming in, they have um, some tradable permit system that, that have very nice uh, features from the point of view of this Kosian, um, uh philosophy and so forth. So basically, that there aren't times when you still need government, but even within then, how government goes about it um, is you can do it in this lighter-handed way or you can do it in this heavier-handed way. And um, th this gives you a, a kind of a, 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 like the easiest way you can think of this transactions cost thing situation and, and what Coase is saying. here, Or uh, it gives you an idea about the way economists are trying to come up with Coasean-like solutions to things. Here's a situation where you have a house that builds a swimming pool and one possibility is it puts a big no trespassing sign up. And then if all if these other houses have kids with little parents with little children and they come over, you know, it's sort of like they're at fault because there's this no tr trespassing sign. So what everybody has to do in all these other houses is build a fence around them to try to protect their children. Well, basically, Coase would say that's not a very... Um, efficient solution for because you've got the tra all these transactions costs here. So instead of sort of having the peop having these people be at fault, what you should do is basically say to the to the swimming pool owner, you got some liability here. So anybody gets hurt, it's going to be on your thing. So you sort of assign the right um, to to the people that have the children to basically. Um, uh, sue if anybody gets hurt, and so then what you're doing is you're giving this guy the incentive to build a fence. And what you can see is building the one fence is a lot cheaper than building a whole bunch of fences. So um, th this is uh, sort of the way that the practical people who 
who picked up on the coast things were also um, uh, people that tended to come from law more than they came from um, economics. Calabresi was dean of the Yale Law School. Steve Breyer was a professor at the Harvard Law School. He's now on the Supreme Court. And they basically spent another 10 or 15 years de developing all these same practical kinds of principles in this Kosian area where you would use things like benefit cost analysis and you know, the, this business of assigning entitlements based on knowledgeable choices about transactions costs, that's kind of the swimming pool case. You make the swimming pool owner build it. The party best able to make benefit cost analysis is usually a business. It might be the polluter, not all the, the people in the cars. Um, so in, in practice, most of the burden is placed on, uh, on uh, uh, producers in this. And I thought I'd give you um, two or three examples. I'm not going to give you um, all the ones that I have because it turns out I'm taking too long to do this talk. This, <laughs> but I'm just noticing myself. Um, that one of them is that if sometimes just telling people they have to provide information is enough to get huge reductions in the amount of pollution. So you don't always have to put in huge command and control pollution laws to do it. So this Community Right to Know Act of 86 is definitely an act that figured out a way to lower um, pollution with very low transactions costs. Highways in the 20th to the 21st centuries is easy pass. I put here for my son Jim because he's in purple and this is his favorite color. But um, just to give you the sense that tolls, I'm just going to read off the bottom here, that they have a lot of transactions costs, driver delays, toll collectors. This easy pass technology reduces driver delays, reduces labor costs, so it's very much a Kosian solution to if you, if you have to have um, toll roads, you're better off to have something like an easy pass. And one of the things that you should be looking for if you have this Kosian stuff in your head is, is there a technology out there that will allow me to, to come up with these kind of um, lower costs? A uh, beautiful example of um, environmental policy that has um, uh, strong Kosian properties has been this CFC stand for chlorofluorocarbons. And um, this, these are the ozone holes in Antarctica. I take see the way it was uh, 10 years ago and see the way it is today. You can just really see visually when people talk about um, the, the hole in the ozone layer in Antarctica getting to be a problem. What is interesting is that in the 30s, the CFCs were seen as this major scientific advance because it was inert, non-toxic, non-corrosive compared to ether vapor, sulfur dioxide, and ammonia, which were the other uh, possibilities that you could use in these uh, in, in the uses. What was interesting is in the Montreal Protocol of 87 toward the end of the century that it was just basically DuPont in the US, ICI in, in, um, in Europe and you ended up with very low costs of bargaining for a global solution around the world. This is just a beautiful Pictures. See, one of the things you can do with this internet, yeah, I mean, you can just pull these things off, like the economists in these cases. You could just see the ozone coming down, and this protocol went into effect here. You can see it kind of coming down, and you can see if you look at the buildup of the CFCs starting, you know, sort of two years later than the protocol, you can sort of see it starting to flatten out. So here's a case where you can actually measurably see the effects of a change in one of these regulatory policies. I'm going to go over that one. 
Um, okay, I want, since I gave in the case of the um, um, economic regulation, uh, something that didn't work out, I wanted, like, which was the electricity thing in California, I wanted to give you a, one here that is not working out as we're coming into the 21st century. And um, pornographic websites seem to be, see, I have a very bland chart, no pornography on the chart. So you have to pick it all up from the top. But, you know, for a lot of people, the hope for law was that you could fence off a porn site pretty much the way porn stores in cities or whatever in a particular area of the city, and they're pretty well fenced off from children and stuff. And it was hoped that you could get something like that on the web. And instead, um, basically, the district court and the Supreme Court and two other cases has basically said, no, First Amendment rights to free speech are more important than um, any of these kind of cosian properties of the solution. And so basically, now families are basically all having to build defenses to fence off uh, their kids if possible, although the kids are better than the parents at using the computers, so this is hard. But, um, people, but what's interesting even here is that you actually see the marketplace working. In other words, America Online offers a service to families that you will basically do some of this. In the minute that you buy it and you check a chart, your service from them basically provides this fence. So you don't always have to have the government providing the fence, even in this case where um, the, na the nature of that law um, you know, is, is basically contrary to the, to the thinking about uh, the better way to do environmental policy now. So now I'm just coming to the last uh, few slides. This um, is just to, to summarize what we've said about contestable markets and deregulation, that we've come from an era where we do an entire industry with regulators setting everything to one in which prices and entry are much more determined by market forces. And in the Cosian theory, we've come from a sort of government provision of these goods, a lot of command and control rules, um, to one in which, in which there's a kind of a reformed way of looking at things where uh, you can either contract to, to, if transactions costs are low, or else figure out a way to, pay, to uh, you know, lower the transactions costs and put the burden of care on, on who's ever able, best able to avoid the costs. The lessons um, for the 21st century, I think, from, from the, if you sort of combine the best of both of these two theories, one is they both sort of focus on the degree of harm and are more concerned with correcting the larger harms than trying to correct every single harm that's out there. Second thing is you sort of try to unbundle or isolate the harm and then target the regulation in a much more narrow and precise way. And then the second big lesson, I think, is that you should, if you, to the extent that you still need to regulate, try to regulate in such a way that markets have their best chance for working. So you need to facilitate entry. Competition helps. You know, if you require disclosure, knowledge helps. <laughs> we haven't talked a, a lot about that. We only had one example of that. And you, if you really want to support efficient solutions to social problems, that it can really help you to work with business instead of having the kind of we-they mentality that, that it used to be toward business. So my last chart is uh, just thinking ahead to this future of regulatory policy, and it's a quote from Alfred Kahn, who 
uh, went to Washington uh, as my boss. And it's, you know, that, that, evolu that regulatory policy, any of this relationship between business and government is always going to evolve. And the trick is to not, not be like a pendulum of a clock where you may go back to where you came from, but instead to be more like a spiral like this where you, you have a direction to where you want to go and, and that direction is informed by um, the best thinking of our times. So that's it. I'd be glad to take some questions if uh, anybody has any. Yes. I have one about automobile insurance. Oh, goodness. Uh, New Jersey is burdened, we're told, by the highest automobile insurance costs of all of the states. And no one talks about deregulation of, uh, of insurance as a possible solution. Would you have any comment about that? Oh, it's not an area that I know a lot about, but like um, one sort of Kosian type of an idea that, that has been floated in Pennsylvania is um, that people could have a choice between whether uh, they will sue or won't sue, and if they decide not to sue, their insurance rates are lowered by about half than if they wanted to re retain the right to sue, so that you can have a sort of a trade-off between, you know, having some, it's, a, it's like a no-fault type of a concept where, you know, somebody will just figure out what the damages are and you get that. See, that comes from the insurance companies, but without all the legal process, basically all those savings are passed on to you. So um, anyway, that, that's kind of one idea, and as, as I understand it, that it, it had an enormous effect putting in that choice. So the, this, I think that's very much of an information type of provision um, solution that, that can help. Yes? You talked about the intrusiveness of, uh, of regulation in the, uh, in the 20th century. And um, it seems to me that one another view of that might be uh, to look at uh, Vail's commitment as being a commitment to work the government and the um, utility together to keep uh, others from intruding. Right. And that indeed that, that was quite effective. Um, and, and one of the ways that that was done was to underman, understaff, and uh, underfund the regulatory agency, so it was dependent upon the regulated. Uh, that, uh, that might have some uh, uh, cautionary uh, lesson for us in the future when we do have to use regulation, that we should fund that regulation uh, and, and not underfund it, as I think we did in the past. I think we underfunded it. There, there is a, another theory. I mean, there's a lot of theories from the 20th century. I mean, I just picked up two because it's like one lecture. But um, there was a group from Chicago came up with a theory called capture theory that over time, the regulatory agencies tend to get captured by the industries that um, regulate them. You know, yours is, is sort of another way of, of saying somebody is trying to make sure that 
the public interest is not being particularly served from all, all of these things through other funding or other mechanisms. And that's much more of a political science kind of a thing, but it, it definitely fits in with all this. I mean, one of the reasons that, that I, I incline so much more to trust the market is because because mostly we've been able to look at this last century where people trusted the government and the government wasn't working very well in a variety of ways. And what you've pointed out is just, in fact, both of you gentlemen have pointed out two ways in which it's not working very well. Sort of a um, three-pronged question about uh, the future of regulation of tobacco. Um, I know that one of the one of the many things that's on your very impressive CV is that you're also on the board of Philip Morris. So I was hoping that you might be able to speak a little bit to what you see as the the future of the regulation of that industry, how the tobacco industry managed to escape the 20th century with one of the least regulated consumer products in the world, and thirdly, what you see as sort of the interface between the heavy hand of corporate political influence and these discussions of deregulation. Okay, well, That's a little bit of a complicated question. A whole bunch of stuff. Um, you know, first thing is, I, I do think that um, uh, the tobacco settlements with the states, you know, have made a huge change in who gets the profits from tobacco. In other words, given that tobacco is a legal product, in this country, and in most countries actually supplied by the government to their people, but in this country supplied by private sector. But the profit was coming into the tobacco companies, but as a result of the settlement, you know, a decade ago or whatever, I mean, it, most of that money is now, I mean, there is no profits left in tobacco. It's basically flowing through the system to try to help in various health-related things and so forth. So I actually think that in the, the 20th century, there was a decision made societally about tobacco in which the profits of tobacco were no longer going to be going to industry, but were going to basically flow through to the public sector. So I'm not sure I agree with your comment that it's, uh, you know, that it hasn't had a, a significant um, governmental um, solution imposed upon it in, in the last century. Um, but. You know, I do think, you know, like looking ahead in this century, um, you know, I mean, my perception, but I'm sure you'll feel I'm captured by the company that I'm on the board of. But, uh, you know, the, the when I first went there um, as a board member, there was a real we-they mentality. You know, there, anybody that wasn't on their side was an ante and so forth. And now they're just much more into a dialogue they're actually having a dialogue about what are appropriate kinds of regulation. Um, I think they were, would have liked having a, a larger settlement, not just with the states, but also with the federal government. Um, so I think they're, you know, they're, I think they are trying, they, they have things that they call societal alignment and they now know that they're not very aligned with society. And I think they're consistent with producing the product that they're producing um, that, that there's been um, a lot of change um, inside them. And not just, I mean, interesting, it's not just with tobacco. I mean, they, they've been doing a lot. I mean, almost every one of their products has got a problem. I mean, they produce beer. <laughs> they produce, you know, like chocolates, coffee. <laughs> 
you know, so it's like it's anything that that consumers particularly like, but not may not be that good for them. But anyway, I think that they're working a lot in those areas, and I think that um, the government's also working a lot in those areas. So, yes. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were about it. Um, sorry. It seems after deregulation in some industries, like the airline industry and also in the railroad industry, after deregulation, there's a reduction of the number of competitors in the marketplace. And what your thoughts are, whether that that's good or bad, or how that can be prevented if it's bad. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am sort of uh, in agreement with the way the, the outgoing Clinton administration, antitrust people, Joel Klein, would tend to think that after deregulation you need to be particularly alert in the antitrust area because uh, particularly in these network industries where there's a value to consumers to have just a few carriers, for example, because you don't want to have to keep changing planes. You don't, different people want to go from one place in the world to another and they would like to go with the one carrier the whole way and the only way with a network industry like that is if, if, that you can do that is if you have small numbers but I think then you have to be extremely alert on what ones you do let happen and what ones you don't like I think it would have been much better in the railroad case if there had not been the manipulation that I described and you had four western railroads, three eastern railroads, you, you could have ended up with four railroads, not two, by having the east-west things take place first. And um, if it hadn't, if it had been done through the Department of Justice, that's what would have happened. And the, the, you, the kinds of things that people are talking about, you can get manipulation of the system. Um, in, in a political way that will prevent the better outcomes from happening. But you're always going to have small numbers whenever you have a network industry because of the convenience to consumers. So it just you, then you have to be very careful how you do it. And yet you want to make it. I mean, what's interesting to me, and I don't fully understand it yet, but there are certain cases around the world where there are only two competitors and you know the competition is fierce and you're not worried about it. Think of like Airbus and Boeing. It's only two of them. But, you know, they're definitely not in league with each other. They are just fighting to get the next big group of contracts here or there around the world. Fujifilm and Kodak fighting. <laughs> you know, so it's, there's a lot of cases where there's only two and they fight, but then there are other cases where two is just too small and they're not. So I think we still need to learn more about how, you know, what it is that, that allows vibrant competition even with the very small numbers. And I'm, I don't think we have that answers to that fully yet, or at least I don't have in a nice sound bite for you. So, Max, do you want to ask? I have this young man here. I've had a question to ask. Would you like this is my great-nephew? Did you have a question or did you not? He's shy now. Okay. <laughs> Grandma has a question, my sister, yes. I think all of us are concerned about what's happening with utilities. And you mentioned what happened in California was the wrong way to go. What do you see as a real possibility for the right way to go? Because I think we're all involved in the future. Well, there is, uh, as you point out, there's a, if, it, if you live in a, a big old house like I do here in uh, New Jersey, you're very aware that utility bills have gone up, not just in California, but everywhere in the country. Unfortunately, that's a lot has to do with the OPEC cartel. And there's one thing that you can do with cartels within a country. You can say, hey, I'm not going to allow it. 
You know, so the Justice Department can say, hey, Archer Daniels Midland, you go to jail, or hey, LaRoche Vitamins, you go to jail if you try to do a cartel. But if the cartel is run by governments, there's not a lot that you can do um, along those lines. So um, certainly is the case that anybody who, for example, Britain deregulated in the electric utility industry, and they had plenty of excess capacity, and they have had none of the, they've still had the price increases that spiked because of the, uh, what was happening in the oil arena last summer, but they're not having any of the kinds of artificial pricing problems that they're having in California. So there's some of these utility pricing problems when you're dealing with any kind of international cartel that one country doesn't, can't bust up. Um, you, you're definitely, that's a legitimate one that you're going to have to face. The California thing is just politics. That, and that politics can ruin good theory. And for every one of these, I mean, I could have told you, I mean, like the whole way the Superfund is, is totally non-cozy. I mean, we've had lots of environmental policies. In fact, Stephen Breyer just last week had to put in a clean air policy that's going to be horrendously expensive. It really upset him, but that's the way Congress wrote him. So you do get politicians getting in the way of thinkers. But what's nice is that in this last century, we had so many good thinkers that were also willing to practice. And, and try to make a difference. And I just hope that in this next century we have the same thing happening with the, some of the young faces around here. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Do, do you feel, going back to airlines, do you feel that if the uh, United and U.S. Airways uh, proposed merger and the American and TWA proposed merger are allowed to go through, that this will inevitably lead to so few airlines in the United States that we will have passed the point of, of um, problems and we'll be down to this too few competitors and we'll have all the negative impacts again. Well, I would except for one thing, and that one thing is Southwest Airlines. I mean, what is so scary to me is without the reason we still have as many low fares as we do in this country is that we have one low fare carrier that's grown, grown from like a half of 1% of the traffic to about 7% now. And if the merger does what you're fearful of and sets higher prices, then Southwest will grow to 10 or 15 or 20%. Anytime it goes in anywhere, the, all the nearby airports are basically, um, you know, cheaper. We, or you have to look harder, you know. So if I ask U.S. Air to get me to Portland, Maine, I maybe can't get it from Philadelphia. I can't get a good deal. But if I go to Manchester, New Hampshire, or some, you know, some other boss that I can. So, I mean, it does make you work harder. It is. Uh, actually, the thing that I'm more fearful of is that I think that if those, both those mergers go through, they'll both be moved from maybe 18, 19 percent of the market up into the mid-20s of the market share in the country. And I think what will happen is that it's going to give Delta an incentive and, and Northwest an incentive and Continental an incentive to try to become the same size. So you have a little bit of a domino effect with these mergers. I mean, it's like the minute that the Western railroads went down from four to two, then the Eastern railroads knew they had to get down from three to two. You know, So the, there is a, a concatenation effect that happens on these things that is something you need to look at. Okay, we're, we'll, we'll take the last question from Max. Could any of these ideas help schools? Could any of these ideas help schools? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Who here does school policy? There's got to be some terrific Princetonian that. Uh, oh my. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, Michael. What? There is an ongoing argument about how much competition helps schools. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So charter schools. Come up with vouchers. Oh. This is true. You see, you would never hear in your family, or his family is quite democratic. <laughs> so, uh, but there is this idea that's coming up under the Bush administration. Hmm. And well, some of my family. I, I'm a little on the outlier. But anyway, there are some ideas that people do have for um, helping schools become better. And I'll talk to you about it. <laughs> Please join us in the multi-purpose room on the lowest level of frisk where there'll be opportunity to ask more questions, I trust. Thank you very, very much. No, it's their machine. And I emailed all the. Uh, it's no big deal. And I emailed all my slides there, so.